Will you turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 90, Psalm 90, and the fellows have Bibles, they're making their way down the aisle, so get their attention as they do, so that you can follow along, they have it marked for you at Psalm number 90. We've been taking a break from the series that we've been doing for several months in the book of Hebrews. And that's because of the Christmas holiday, New Year's, had a New Year's themed message last week and again today. I'll be gone the next two Sundays, leaving Wednesday for India. Please pray about that if you would. And then we will resume in the book of Hebrews the last Sunday of this month on January the 31st. Today, Psalm 90. A Detroit uh, television news station recently ran a series about people who've died and whose bodies are unclaimed at the morgue. Dozens of people die each year with no one knowing or apparently caring that they passed. Three of the forgotten were identified as DeWanda McNeil, Maurice Weber, and Alan Jones. The Associated Press picked up the story and said this, DeWanda McNeil, Maurice Weber, and Alan Jones were laid to rest in paupers' graves. Their names left to be recognized by a half dozen strangers at a service in a small Detroit funeral chapel. McNeil, Weber, and Jones were recognized at the once-a-month celebration of friends service at Perry Funeral Home, started last year by Paul Betts after he had heard about the unclaimed dead. Those who attend light candles, say prayers, and sing hymns to recognize the deceased. We're here to celebrate the fact that they were part of our world, and we're just going to say thank you, Beth said, during the service for McNeil, Weber, Jones, and others. What a tragedy to leave this world forgotten as though you were never here. And worse than dying forgotten is to live a life that is forgettable. While most people don't die alone as these unfortunate souls did, many, not many, most, most people live lives that will soon be forgotten. Andy Warhol was right when he replied to a compliment about one of his paintings. In a million years, what will it matter? In a thousand years, what will it matter? Or a hundred? Or fifty? One of the great tragedies that I've observed in ministry is that even many professing Christian people muddle through life. If you say what's going on, what do we say? Nothing much. Same old. You think about that for a Christian person. Given mission with eternal consequences to carry out in our few days sojourn on this earth. Nothing much. Same old. The truth is we live in a gap. We believe... And, though, and therefore, we must be saved, we assume. And in eternal security, we believe as well. 
rightly. I've trusted Jesus. I therefore am going to heaven. So what's the rest of this about? What's the gap about? And so life just in, in the here and now for many people is having been saved in the past, looking forward to a joying God, eternity with God in the future. But why doesn't God just take me up now? What's the rest of this time about? And for many people, we're just marking off time until we get to heaven. Why doesn't God just take me up, beam me up, Lord? And so for many professing Christians, life is just one big Bill Knapps. You all remember the now defunct Bill Knapps? It was usually populated with elderly folks. We used to love to go there. We were the youngest people there most of the time. And some people termed it God's waiting room. And for many people, life is just one big Bill Knapps, just waiting, just whittling time until the Lord comes or I die, but nothing much in between. Now look, I can relate, and more important, the Bible writers can relate to the idea that we long for heaven and we look forward to our, our eternal home with the Lord, Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And so on the one hand, Paul, like I trust we, longs for and thinks about the better city and our heavenly home. But at the same time, he was not just whittling off the days because notice the words fruitful labor. There's something important for me to do in the here and now, in the gap in between. It's, he says, more necessary. It's more necessary because I got something to do. So when I was a kid, there was the beer commercial that would say, you only go around once. So go for the gusto. But a worldview tinted by the lens of Scripture, a biblical worldview says this, you only go around once. So make it count. Make it count for eternity. One of the things that I've tried to stress to this beloved flock is that that we are here not merely filling time in the gap. And I've sought to impress upon you the truth that we have a mission and that we need, we must order our lives around the mission. What's the mission again? One author has put it well when he said the primary mission of the church and therefore of the church is, is to proclaim the gospel of Christ and gather believers into local visible churches where they can be built up in the faith, made effective in service, thereby planting new congregations throughout the world. And you play a role in that. And I play, every last one of us is called by God to play a role in that. A mission that has eternal consequences, that is beyond You and me and this particular locale and even this particular time. We're each part of the mission. 
and we're to each play a vital role in its fulfillment, and we must order our lives around it. And so at the beginning of this new year, I thought it appropriate to impress upon you once again, and upon myself once again, the need to order our lives around the mission that God has given us, friends, so that we don't just live lives that in the even short run are forgettable. Psalm 90 provides wisdom for living lives that have meaning and purpose. Psalm 90 is a prayer, the purpose of which is expressed in the last line of the psalm, verse 17. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us, yes. Establish the work of our hands. Here's a prayer that ends with that request. That our work on earth, in the here and now, be established. The word established means make it last. Cause it to stand. May our work be firm. May it carry on beyond us. May it not be forgotten. May it outlive and outlast us. How does that become a reality? Psalm 90 has a kind of reverse cause and effect logic to it. If we want our work and our time here to be more than just whittling time, to be established, to last, to stand firm, then we have to heed the words further up in the psalm in the key verse in verse 12. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. If our work's going to be established, we need to number our days, but if we're going to number our days and thereby have a heart of wisdom, we'll need to do what the verses before that say. In fact, one translation connects verse 12 with the 11 verses that precede it with the word so. So, in light of those first 11 verses, teach us to number our days aright. And what do those preceding verses say? That we have to reflect on the inevitability of death and the brevity of life if we're going to use our days in a way to make them count, then we need to recognize, friends, that we don't have many of them. That's how we number our days. All right. And that's how then our work will last, stand, and be established. Then isn't it true? Forgive the grammar, we ain't got no time to waste. You don't have time to waste on petty arguments and petty issues which mean absolutely nothing ultimately in the grand sweep of what God has called us to do together. We don't have time for petty arguments and nonsense. I don't and you don't because we have important work to do and a short time to do it. So let me give a little bit of background to this prayer that is Psalm 90. If you look at the very top of Psalm 90, before even the first verse, there's what's called a superscription there, a title. And in most of the Bibles you have in front of you, it'll say this, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. You all see that? There are 150 biblical psalms. 
Most of those were written by David. Exactly one was written by Moses. And this is it. And here Moses is at the end of his life. And he's led God's people out of bondage in Egypt. Wandered in the desert for 40 years. Come to the banks of the promised land. And now this aged saint reflects and prays for the next generation. And that's what Psalm 90 is about. And in verses 1 and 2, here's what he prays. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I say in the outline that we've supplied for you in your program, and I encourage you to follow along, that the first thing that Moses acknowledges in this prayer for the next generation is that life is God-centered. That is, that God sets the context for all aspects of our lives. If we're going to live lives that count, then we have to see our lives in their relation to God. Those of you that have taken the class that we offer in our community institute that I teach called How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible will have heard me say many times in that class that the Bible is really about one thing. It's about people in situations, but then there are two more words. It's not just people in their situations and in their circumstances. It's people in situations before God. People in their circumstances, but always and foremost in the presence of God. Two-thirds of your Bible, the 66 books that comprise your Bible, fully two-thirds of those are narrative. That is, they're narrating, they're telling the story of what happened to other people. You say, why would I really care much what happened to other people? Because even though the situations are varied and different, two things are exactly the same between that time and our time. People and God. The situations are different, but people haven't changed, and certainly God has not changed. And God gives two-thirds of the Word of God to narrate the story of how He interacted with people. He gives enough of those situations for you to see yourself and me, myself, before God in those situations. And so all of life is God-centered. It's all to be referenced in terms of God. Every last piece of it. And so in your relationships, in your relationships, it's not just you and the other person. It's you, the other person, and most importantly, God. There are always at least three persons in every relationship. And the most important is God as it relates to your circumstances and the difficulties and the suffering and the trials that you endure, if referenced in light of God, Paul is able to write in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 that these, these trials are light and they are momentary compared to eternity. If you see all of life, in light of God and in relation to God, 
you recognize that God is the power without which you can do nothing. John 15 and verse 5, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Life is God-centered. If life is centered upon God, if it's about God, then the reverse is true as well, friends. It's about His glory. It's about His honor. It's about displaying His character. That means it's not about you. It's not about me. Life is God-centered. And Moses says, Lord, we've been dependent on you for our dwelling. Not only for these two generations of wandering, but always. And in light of your eternal existence, our time here is but a brief speck. And we're going to see in verses 3 and following that he elaborates then upon that. I remember as a senior in high school going on my class trip it was the first time that I'd ever entered the state of Florida. I've been there two or three times, three or four times since. At age 18, it was the first time I'd gone there. First time I'd ever been to the ocean. And I remember standing on the beach and looking at the vastness and the majesty of the ocean. And I remember how small, how very small I felt. And appropriately so. In view of God's majestic creation that we can only see a tiny piece of, we are but a very tiny, minuscule speck as sand on the shore, as it were. And in terms of the brevity of our lives, they are here from an eternal perspective one day and gone the next. Life is to be God-centered then. We're going to live lives of wisdom that are lives that are established. They last. They're firm. We've got to recognize that it's centered upon the eternal God. We've got to deal with, forthrightly, the fact, secondly in your outline, that our lives will end in death. Verse 3. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. Moses had become somewhat of an expert on death because during their 40-year sojourn in the wilderness, he saw so many people die. You see, Moses led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. And when he did that, the Bible tells us how many people were part of that journey. Here's what it says. These were the men counted by Moses and Aaron and the twelve leaders of Israel, each one representing his family, all the Israelites twenty years old or more who were able to serve in Israel's army were counted according to their families. The total number was 603,550. That many adult men, adult males, left Egypt with Moses. Now, if these men had wives, as undoubtedly they did, that would mean approximately 1.2 million adults participated in the exodus from Egypt. Further, the Bible tells us this. None of those 1.2 million adults lived to enter the promised land at the end of the 40 years. We'll see the reason why in just a bit. So consider the math. 
1.2 million adults die in 40 years. That is 30,000 a year. 30,000 each year means approximately 83 a day. 83 a day is about three or four every hour. Now, they didn't die evenly like that. But on average, Moses saw a bunch of people dying over 40 years on a regular basis. So Moses, by the nature of the circumstances, could not escape the inevitability of death. But we try to do that. We try to suppress the reality of death. We attempt to suppress the process with cosmetics. We attempt to suppress the product by placing our cemeteries many miles away from our homes so we don't have to think about it. But Moses not only understood that death is inevitable, but he also understood that it occurs all too soon. That's the third thing I have in your outline. Our lives will end, and they will end, relatively soon. Verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. Moses offers three metaphors to illustrate how brief life is. First, he says that from God's perspective, a thousand years is like a single day. He calls it a day that has just gone by. Now, when we consider our lives in light of that truth, it shows just how extremely brief is our time on earth. Consider this. If you live an extraordinarily long life, you might reach a hundred years. Or one-tenth of the thousand that Moses mentions. And one-tenth of one day is like two and a half hours. Moses is saying it's like from God's perspective, our lives are like two and a half hours. But it's worse than that because he goes on to compare our lives to what he calls a watch in the night. And in their culture, watchmen worked in shifts to guard the city gates from attack. The typical watchman's shifts, shift was three hours. But remember, our lives are no more than one-tenth of that. Eighteen minutes. So the aforementioned Andy Warhol said, everybody gets his 15 minutes of fame. And God says, everybody gets his 15 minutes of life. If he's blessed. The Bible actually tells us that the normal lifespan is, in the King James language, three score and ten. A score is 20. Three of those is 60. Ten more is 70 years. If you live 70 years, you've done very well. 70 years is like 15 minutes. About four and a half years per minute. If you're 25, You've used about five of your 15 minutes. You've got 10 to go. If you're 35, you're halfway there. You've used seven and a half. Seven and a half to go. 45, use 10, five to go. What are you going to do with those last five from an eternal perspective? 
If you're 55, you've used 12 already. If you're 65, you're within the two-minute warning. And if you're over 70, you're in overtime. I'm 47. At 47, if God allows me three score and ten, I've lived two-thirds of my life already. I have one-third left, maybe. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to mess around with stuff that doesn't matter? Are you going to leave unfinished business in the relationships that God has given you with this brief time that you have? Are you going to fritter it away on lesser things? Are you going to be petty about whether or not you get your way about whatever it is? Are you kidding me? The nonsense, friends, that I and we concentrate our efforts on in this brief moment that is our God-given life for His mission. And it's still worse than that, Moses tells us. His third metaphor for the brevity of life puts in mind the fact that really from an eternal perspective our lives are momentary. Verse 5, you sweep men away in the sleep of death. The word translated swept is sometimes translated washed. It pictures a tide washing on shore. Most of us have had that experience of standing on the ocean shore, watching the tide ebb and flow. And on the shore, there's sand and there's seaweed and there's pebbles and there's seashells. But after one wash of the tide, one wash, There's new sand, new seaweed, new pebbles, and new seashells. And so it is with each generation, which from an eternal perspective is here one moment and swooshed, washed away in the next. Our lives are very brief. They will end relatively soon. And why will they end? They will end because of sin. We were made for eternity, you know. Death is an intruder. And yet the fourth thing that Moses acknowledges in this prayer is what I have for you in the outline. Our lives will end because of death. Verse 7. We're consumed by your anger, terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. I mentioned earlier that none of the Israelites who left Egypt made it to the promised land alive. And the reason that the Bible gives for that is that they sinned against God's directive. Early in their journey in the desert, the Israelites had opportunity to take the land that God had promised to them. But because they did not trust God 
and that he would give victory over the land's inhabitants, they refused to go in. And as a result, God burned in anger at their sin and he consigned them to wander in the desert. And so Deuteronomy tells us this. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your forefathers. The only exceptions were the two who brought back and said, Lord, we can obey you. We can go in, Caleb and Joshua. As a result of their sins, the Israelites were reduced to simply killing time in the desert. Each day they would get up, they would get food, they would eat, they would put up a tent, they would get up, they would take it down and do the same thing over again. In effect, sin caused them to be consigned to the rat race of life. You say, wow, what a miserable existence, just going through the motions day after day. Hear this, friends. If we're failing to live our lives in obedience to and pursuit of God's objectives, then we are just killing time on the treadmill of the rat race. Today we're bombarded with philosophies that amount to nothing more than killing time. Live it up. Go for the gusto. Go for the warm weather. Go for the golf. Go for the games. Fill in your blank. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And many a professing Christian has bought into the allure of the world and the pursuit of its fool's gold. And as a result, many churches are filled with people who are just killing time. And they are filled with pastors who preside over what one author called chaplains to the rat race. Maybe you've gathered that I'm not content to be a chaplain to the rat race. Solomon wrote a book about the rat race. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. And in it he described his own experience of just killing time. So he looked for meaning in things like pleasure and work and hobbies. And what was his conclusion? You read it throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. All is meaningless. Shakespeare's Macbeth understood the dilemma. He said, all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It, life, is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And so the rat race will not satisfy. In the rat race, you can't get no satisfaction. And so that great theologian, Don Henley was right when he said, you're losing all your highs and lows. Ain't it funny how the feeling goes away? It goes away 
Because it doesn't last and it doesn't satisfy. That's why Augustine was correct to say, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So what's the solution? To the dilemma of a brief life that ultimately signifies nothing. Fifthly, I have in your outline. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, we can live lives of meaning. Verse 12. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And the word translated wisdom is the Hebrew word chokmah. It means skillful living that achieves its purpose. It's used in the first part of your Bible of those who would take flax and they would turn it into linen, which in turn was used to make garments for the priest in the temple. It was used of those who cut trees for use by the carpenters of the tabernacle. And so one displaying wisdom is one who uses his skill to achieve the purpose for which it was given. So here's the thing. The skill and the stuff and the time that you've been given was not given to you or to me to fritter away on our insignificant things. The person who has a heart of wisdom understands that the time that I have, brief though it be, is a gift from God to be used for His purpose. So what is that? Whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. That's God's purpose at all times and in all ages that He received glory. But we have to then ask, friends, how does He receive that glory now in our day? The Bible doesn't leave you in the dark. The Bible says, I've established a mission for you to participate in. For me to receive that glory. And so Jesus' parting words to his first followers and now to us are to make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And he gives the promise that I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We call that rightly the great mission, the great commission. And we call it great because it's great in its scope and it's great in its promises. It's great in that it constitutes the marching orders for believers in this age. We're to be about the business of introducing folks to Christ, initiating them into the church. That's the baptizing. Teaching them to grow in grace. That's the discipling. So that they can give themselves to the same great cause. If we're going to live wisely, and use our few days for the purpose of giving. It means, friends, that we, allow, we align our priorities in the use of our time and our talent and our treasure to maximize their utility in God's work. We gain a heart of wisdom when we number our days. That is, we recognize that in light of death's certainty and life's brevity, we don't have time to kill. We use the abilities and the gifts God has given to accomplish His purpose, His glory, through His mission. I have one last point then. 
that Moses prays about. I give it to you in your outline. Our lives can be measured not only in the here and now, and so for 10 years or 50 or 100, we're more likely forgotten, but rather they can be measured in eternity. Verse 17 again. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish, Lord, the work of our hands. Yes, Lord, establish what we do, the work of our hands. And so, friends, it is true that right now counts forever. That is, this moment right now counts forever. But it also means doing right now counts forever. Right now counts forever. If you spend your days living for God's objectives, you'll be able to identify with the words of the great apostle who at the end of his life was able to say, the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight and I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. But you'll be able to identify with the words of the Lord Jesus. Do you all see what Jesus Does it resonate with you to hear Jesus, who died for you, who gave himself for you and me? Does it resonate, dear friend, with you to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servants. You have been faithful with those few days and months and years that I gave you. You've been faithful with the stuff that I gave you. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. I should add that it's not how you start, it's how you end. Right? And so, you know, I go through, hey, you're in overtime. It's a two-minute warning. doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you end. We're going to pray in just a moment. And I trust at the beginning of a new year, God's people in this place will commit themselves anew to put aside the pettiness and the nonsense and to pursue God's objectives with a little bit of time that we have together. I end with one illustration. A fellow named William Borden was the heir to the Borden Dairy Fortune. You all know Borden Dairy Products. Some of you are old enough. I don't know they still have Elsie the cow. But that's them. Borden Dairy Fortune. He was in Egypt for a brief period of time. Just a few years ago, an American pastor went over to Egypt to visit a missionary friend who took him to the grave of William Borden who was buried in Egypt. It was in a plot 
surrounded by overgrown grass in a graveyard for American missionaries. It had a sun-scorched tombstone on it that said the years 1887 to 1913, 25 years. William Borden was not only wealthy, he was a graduate of Yale. And yet he rejected the pursuit of fun for a short time with the massive wealth and education that he had and instead determined to bring the gospel to Muslims He had no car. He gave in his short lifetime hundreds of thousands of dollars for missions purposes. Four months into his time in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis and he died. This pastor said, I dusted off that tombstone. And after it mentioned some of the life and sacrifice of William Borden, the last line said this, Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. That pastor says that the very next day he was taken to visit the tomb of King Tut, the boy Pharaoh. You all have heard of King Tutankhamun, right? The Egyptians believed in life after death, but they believed you better take something with you. That's why there's such massive and marvelous wealth in the tomb of King Tut. But I ask you, who died more wealthy? Borden or King Tut? Paul or J. Paul Getty? Any person you want to mention compared to a believer who sold out to Jesus and uses his or her few days dies more wealthy than the wealthiest person ever in this world. The question is, who do you want to be? Do you want to be Paul? Do you want to be Borden? I trust we have a room full of people who say, I want to hear Jesus say, well done. Because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's bow together. Jesus, in light of your great sacrifice for me, in light of you having left heaven's splendor for me, though you were rich, for our sakes you became poor. You did for me what I couldn't do for myself. You continue to do for me what I can't do for myself. Only you can give meaning to the relatively few days we have in this world. So, Lord, help me to put aside anything that would keep me from the grand purpose of bringing glory to you through the mission that you allow, allow, you let me participate in this. You let us participate in this. Lord God, move on the hearts of people, I ask you. Move on hearts so that relationships that have been broken and harmed and petty for years 
will be made right for Jesus' sake. That pride will melt away in the light of the humility of the Lord Christ. That my pride will not exist. That the pride of my brothers and sisters here will be subordinated to the humility of Jesus and what he calls us to. Oh, Lord, move on hearts, I ask you now. Move on hearts today and this week and this month. May this year be a year in which your people at Community Baptist Church determine that we are going to be all in for Christ and his mission. Whatever role you give me to play, I will gladly play it for you. I will play it to the best of my ability. I will play it with all that you have given me. As a result, Lord, may you see fit to bring many to yourself this year. May many grow in you. May your work be advanced. Thereby may your name be glorified. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.